This is Betatron, Investing in Asia, a podcast for people who want to invest in Asia's future. We're talking about Asia outside of China, where 44% of the world's population lives. They are young, they're digital natives, and their buying power is increasing by the day. I'm your host, Arshad Chowdhury, a partner with Betatron Venture Group based in Hong Kong. Today, we look at Bangladesh. It's one of Asia's fastest growing economies. We'll look at how the country is changing. We'll learn about the demographics, about finding strong startups, what some of the risks are, and where the country is going in the coming years. Today's guest is Rahat Ahmed, CEO and founder at Anchorless Bangladesh, a VC fund investing exclusively in Bangladesh. After Rahat graduated from New York University Stern School of Business with a degree in finance, he started covering Bangladesh in 2004 for Prince Street Capital and then specialized in emerging and frontier markets with a focus on the impact of emerging technologies on consumer behavior. In 2016, he helped seed Patau, a Bangladesh ride-sharing logistics startup, and previously he co-founded Trinity VR, a virtual reality sports science platform for player development, scouting, and analytics used in Major League Baseball. So coming to his current role at the helm of Anchorless, he's already invested in the health tech startup called Maya, a logistics company called Loop, and in Gaze, an API platform for visual recognition AI. So thanks for joining us, Farhat. Thanks for having me, Arshad. All right, let's jump right in. My first question is, are you nuts? Why would you leave New York City, <laughs> a place that sees billions in VC investment every year, to come back to Bangladesh to invest in a very young startup scene? And you did this pre-pandemic when everything in the US seemed kind of okay. Why move to Bangladesh to invest in local startups? The easy answer is the market opportunity is massive. And there is a financial upside here that I think is potentially quite lucrative. That's the easy answer. I think the more complex answer is looking into my life and having grown up in Bangladesh when I was a kid, moving to Texas, growing up in suburbia, and then spending the last 20 years in New York. One thing I've realized in my life is you can't run away from your identity. I've always gotten the sense that the second I mentioned that I'm Bangladeshi, people look at me with a sense of almost pity or hesitations like, oh, I'm sorry, should, is, that, is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? The reality is you are who you are and you make the world better by actively participating and doing good things. And as a Bangladeshi, I know that as I get older, it's important that I play a role in the ability of my peers, their children, and their children to be able to walk uh, through the streets of New York, Tokyo, Milan, I don't know, wherever, and be proud of who they are and not be discounted because of their nationality. And that plays a role to me. You think about Korea 30, 40 years ago versus now, if you tell somebody you're Korean 30, 40 years ago, they're like, oh, that's an impoverished country in Asia, lots of martial law, this and that. Then you hear... Now it's like, oh man, I love K-pop. Parasite was awesome. You had a Korean film win Best Picture at the Oscars. We can do that. And I think it's only a matter of time, but we need to first believe in ourselves and make sure that A, we empower our youths on the ground here to do more. And on the flip side, make sure that both sides of the diaspora, those who are at home and abroad, know what's going on. 
And I, I believe that this is part of a core part of our mission. This really resonates with me. I'm like you, a fellow Bangladeshi, but I was born and raised in the U.S., spent a lot of time back and forth between the U.S. and Bangladesh. And I think I, I agree. We're seeing this transformational period in Bangladesh right now. And it's not just something that I've noticed on my own, but rather just uh, this week, the U.N. declared that the country graduated from among the least developed countries to a developing country. And they are on the way to becoming a middle-income country. So on that same walk that countries like Singapore went through once, countries like Korea went through, and hopefully countries like Vietnam are also on. Help me think about the startup scene today in Bangladesh. And what advantages do you think Bangladesh might have compared to maybe some of its neighbors in terms of local talent, costs, and other factors? I've been covering emerging markets since 2004. And one of the things that stood out to me is this is effectively an anomaly, a macroeconomic anomaly. At a very base level, we are both underfunded and growing at a rate that's unprecedented. That's a double whammy, if you will, of opportunity. Large and young population, you've got 50% around and under the age of 30. As they get older, you have access to higher disposable incomes, as well as development of new industries. You have digital talent. We have now the second largest digital talent pool in the world behind India and ahead of the United States. Now, there is an argument on quality in ARPU, but that base still exists and it can be developed further. And most importantly, from 2009 to 2019, the fertility rate actually dropped to replacement level, which means the country is actually no longer growing in population. However, the GDP has continued to accelerate. So in that period, we actually saw per capita GDP compounded growing over 10% a year. Why I consider it a macroeconomic anomaly is even with the incredible economic growth Bangladesh has shown, right now Bangladesh is doing roughly $1 of early stage investments per person. In comparison, that number for a country like, say, India, which is the same GDP per capita, and I know that's not a perfect uh, metric, but just you know, for comparison purposes, India is doing almost $30 a person. Indonesia is getting close to $40 a person. But Bangladesh is at $0.95. Cents. That is a major, major gap that even if you think the companies and the ecosystem has a while to go, the valuation discrepancy is just absolutely absurd and needs to be uh, remedied. So to go from 500 GDP per capita to 1,000, 1,000 to 2,000 is relatively easy because it's, it's quite often based on manual labor arbitrage. But for the country to move from 2,000 to 4,000 to 6, 8, 10, you need to move up the value chain. And in order to do that, you need to have soft skills, being able to go and fundraise, be able to do business deals with either Western clients or even in the region. The other thing is we have not historically had end-to-end uh, ownership of whatever we're building. Quite often, we're just working for others. In the tech sector, those who don't leave the country end up working quite often for BPOs who are servicing foreign companies. And obviously, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that, except that those who are listening on the investment side know that valuation multiples are much lower when you are service-based versus controlling your revenue stream. I find Bangladesh to be surprisingly advanced in some ways, but hard to navigate in others. For example, the country has rolled out a national ID card that is tied to SIM cards and also bank accounts. I think the U.S. and many other countries are far behind in, in that respect. 
Are there other examples? How much of a role does uh, technology play in the average 20-something-year-old's life in Bangladesh? Are they likely to embrace new technologies? And how about in terms of fintech and banking? In terms of the biggest benefit the NID has had in the government's implementation has been super simple. The rate at which Bangladesh is now vaccinating is one of the fastest in the world. I think as of today, we're at about 3.2 million people vaccinated. At one point, if you were, say, over 50, all you had to do is go to a website, put in your name, your NID, your phone number. Within two to three days, you get an SMS with a location and a time to show up, and you went and got it. And it was incredibly efficient. And that number has continued to scale. And I think one of the reasons this is working is there is an underbelly of smartphone penetration that's happening without us really recognizing it. We are very much used to looking at smartphone prices at a service level. We go and see what Symphony is selling, $80, $30, $50, et cetera. Even at the lowest end, $30. They're not particularly great, but they work. But what's fascinating is there are more and more companies figuring out the secondhand market. Historically, when we have an older phone, we just kind of leave it. I I literally have two on my desk right now. But now people are figuring out, okay, I've got this startup or that startup, which allows me to easily sell my phone for a bit of a profit. And it's easy. And it creates a job in the process because somebody has to come and pick up the phone. That's awesome in itself. And then that phone ends up in the hands of somebody who otherwise may not have ever had the affordability to own a phone. That's Super exciting. And I don't think that has been reflected across the board in a lot of the data. I think we're going to wake up one day and suddenly we're going to double our smartphone penetration, which is just incredible. Now, the other thing that I think is quite fascinating about smartphones and applications, there is an underbelly in this country of applications that almost nobody's aware of that people are using at scale. Like One of the largest messenger apps in this country is a company called Emo which most people have no idea about. Everybody assumes it's Messenger or WhatsApp, but Emo is very dominant. And then you have other Chinese apps such as Bigo, which is kind of a live video streaming platform. You go on there and it's there are more Bangladeshis on there than almost everybody from around Asia. So these apps are active and they're live and people are using them more often than we think. So these are actually opportunities for us to maybe potentially build our own platforms. These are This is exciting. These are gateways that have not been tapped. And... The digitization of this country, and something that we actually just wrote about in our yearly letter, is something that is going to happen almost overnight in, in, in the sense of time. One of the big things that we have come to understood is historically, people have not downloaded apps because they were worried that they would run out of memory. But that is no longer an issue. Data is getting cheaper, the, both the, the bandwidth as well as physical storage. That is allowing for people to freely download more apps, test out more apps, not worry about deleting one so they can make room for another. I'm sure, Arshad, you remember from back in the day, constantly I had to delete stuff from my 100 megabyte hard drive in order to install a new game. That mentality also existed in the smartphone market early on. That's going away. And these are crazy events that we are not fully comprehending yet, but they will have an impact sooner than later. Absolutely. I'm seeing changes in the devices people are carrying and, of course, the behavior that changes along with those. And tell me how you choose deals. You must see many, many startups now, and the standard filters, I'm sure, apply to all deals around the world. You look for a great team with a great idea that's wrapped into a great product operating in a large market with demonstrated traction and all with defensibility from competitors. But 
beyond those standard filters, are there other dimensions to consider specific to Bangladesh? And do you personally bias towards some of those criteria more than others? The first thing we have to realize is why is a Western LP or a global LP going to invest in Bangladesh? That's the question we need to ask. So there's an initial perceived risk. There's an initial country perceived risk, all this other stuff. So we have to hold ourselves and our portfolio to a significantly higher standard. I have people come to me and say, oh, brother, this is an easy three to five X. I'm like, yeah, somebody in New York could probably flip real estate for that. I don't know why they would come all the way to Bangladesh to make that deal. So we, we are trying to imbue this mentality of putting founders in the shoes of an investor in Singapore, in Tokyo, in New York. And we, we try to get them to understand when an investor wakes up in one of these cities, they don't say, oh, I am going to invest in a Bangladeshi startup today. They say, I'm going to make the best investment possible. And is it potentially a company in Bangladesh? Is that Bangladeshi company I'm talking to offering a risk reward that is significantly more interesting to me than something else in, say, Indonesia, New York, I don't know, Slovakia? The options are global for most people. What we've been able to do at Angulus is we kind of package this. We are currently the only international institutional fund that is 100% Bangladesh. But we understand high net worth individuals, family offices, certain institutions, they might have 100 million, 200 million, a billion dollars. Their mandate is diversification. They see a gigantic opportunity in the macro story that's happening in Bangladesh. And so we are able to provide them a service where we say, listen, we've got $150 million, allocate 1.5%. 2% to us because you are taking a macro risk in a burgeoning country. And we are also then offering you two micro products inside. And when I say that, we are looking at two different types of investments at all times in Bangladesh. One are companies that are going to be dominant in local large-scale industries with large towns. So healthcare, massive industry, especially as the population is aging. I, I there are, there are no like official numbers, but it's pretty obvious to me like less than 1% of this country actually has healthcare. Access to healthcare is, is it's not the easiest thing in the world. That is, is a wide open market. Agritech, garments industry, which exported, I think, over $30 billion last year. These industries can have large-scale solutions that are local. They don't actually really need to go and service India or Philippines or the United States. They can be $100 million, $200 million companies on their own. But then you have... The companies such as our investment in Gaze. Gaze is a AI API company that is really targeting global users because the technology works for everybody. And because it's an API, it can be used by anybody without having sales teams on the ground in every location. We don't need physical infrastructure. It's, it's online and available. I think by next year, we expect majority of their revenues, if not almost all of it, to be outside of Bangladesh. And at that point, a company like Gaze is not necessarily a Bangladeshi company. It's a Bangladeshi company, but that operates at a global scale. So the you know, valuation is no longer limited to the TAM that Bangladesh offers. The, the real constriction there is, okay, do we have the talent in Bangladesh? And is, it, is the quality good enough? Now, I think it's really interesting because that is a question that has multi-layers to it. One thing that we need to note is we have seen examples of this. There are two examples that I really like. One is NewsCred, which is a New York-based startup that's raised over $100 million, founded by three Bangladeshi Americans, 
with a significant percentage of their team, including their engineering base, in Bangladesh. So is that kind of a Bangladeshi startup? I think there's a pretty good argument for it, but it is branded very well to be a New York-based startup. We could theoretically do the same with a lot of companies going forward. Do we want to? Is that necessary? We'll kind of find out because I think that's perception more than reality, and reality should take uh, precedence over time. Another great example is companies like Freshworks. Started out in Chennai, they raised capital, they became regional, then global, and now they're based out of San Francisco, raised a half a billion dollars. There is a pathway to empower our founders locally here in Bangladesh to become global companies. That is leveraging the local talent. Like if I can get a Python engineer for $30,000 here who would cost $250,000 in the United States, I can probably get three of them, build out a company much faster, and gain competitive advantage before I even need to raise significant pool of capital. That, that's a pretty big advantage if done properly. And so we are constantly looking for founders who we believe are able to take advantage of those opportunities. I think we're seeing more and more of those opportunities that are both large local opportunities, but also opportunities like Gaze that have the potential to expand internationally. And I think having a deep pool of talent in Bangladesh locally makes it all that much more likely, from my perspective, that we'll see more companies like NewsCred in the next few years. So let's talk about risk. I've recently learned the hard way that India's rules for foreign investment vis-a-vis, say, China are changing fast, making my Hong Kong-based team think carefully about how we make those investments. So for Bangladesh, what risks are there in investing in startups in Bangladesh that might be different from other markets? Are there any particular things to look out for? And sometimes I know we get into the weeds a bit about this, but looking at a lot of Indian companies, I notice that there are many more early stage investors on the cap table than you might expect in the US. What are you seeing in Bangladesh in terms of risks and things to look out for? Sure, I, I think one of the risks is super simple, is, is that the ecosystem is still learning uh, best practices. So recently I, I wrote an article on how to angel invest in the country's largest uh, English newspaper. The whole idea is let's make sure that we don't have angels asking for 50% equity board seats on day one, dividends, which is counterintuitive in this scenario. And I think the reception has been actually quite good. We found ourselves a small group of angels that we trust who we go to when we find startups that are too early stage for us, but we see promise in. And we say, hey, listen, do you want to look at this? I think that's only going to grow. I think you'll also have more Bangladeshis from abroad looking in. There's an organization called Bangladesh Angels, for instance, that has a angel network of Bangladeshis abroad. I think they're slowly leaning into this and seeing what's available. In terms of capital restrictions, I think one of the misconceptions quite often is repatriation is a problem, etc. I have to be honest, in my experience with the central bank here, I found them to be very, very reasonable. Conservative, yes, but reasonable. It's you know, not surprising to you know, worry about money leaving the country. Uh, that has historically happened. I don't think from an investment perspective, when it comes to startups, we should worry about it as much. Partially because what we do, in, this is a standard across Southeast Asia, uh, whether you look at India, Vietnam, Indonesia, it's quite often the companies are domiciled in Singapore and sometimes in the U.S., depending on the type of company. And I think that's kind of a necessary thing, partially because it makes investment for foreign investors easier. And second, we have to think about the court system. And for instance, Gaze is a really good example here. They have IP. If there's any issues with the IP there, to combat it in Singaporean court is significantly easier. It's more globally recognized and, and more efficient. 
So these are kind of adjustments that we take. So when we look at our investments, we try to get as much transparency into the financials, burns. I have a partner who will actually ask for code, which is probably as deep uh, as due diligence as uh, a lot of companies have ever seen here. And it's, it's all about putting the investor at ease. I think our due diligence process is probably one of the toughest in the country. And we are improving on it with every investment. I'll, I'll be honest, like, you know, when we first started, we didn't even know some of the problems that would pop up. And that's fine. I mean, I think that's part of the process. So we have a partner here, for instance, who we've started building out a due diligence checklist that we want to standardize for the whole ecosystem. And we want to just throw it out there and say, listen, anytime you try to go raise money, have all these things ready to go, because otherwise there will be delays. It will also make the country look worse. So our startup's preparedness is a reflection of our ecosystem. So it is, I think, a collective duty of ours to work together and support each other. And do you think preparedness has anything to do with some of the challenges around raising later rounds that some of the Bangladeshi companies face? Yes, absolutely. I, I think one of the issues has historically been not fully understanding venture capital and the fundraising process. The importance of having a seed investor that's institutional with a mandate to not only follow on, but make sure that you get your successive rounds is not something that has historically been understood. I've seen cap tables with just tons of angels. Money is not sufficient. And anybody who's done enough venture and startups knows money doesn't really mean much unless it comes with a lot of support structure and the ability to sometimes just be there. Founder empathy is something that I think we're working on as a, as a culture here. I think historically, the idea has been, hey, I have a lot of money. I'm going to give this guy some money, and he is effectively my employee. When we invest in a company here, we basically say, we are now your employees. Some of them actually really love that, and I don't mind those 1 a.m. phone calls, but that is why we're there. And I think it's important to have that gateway and that freedom to reach out whenever it's absolutely necessary. Because as an investor, this is the easiest it's ever going to be. The first check is just easy. We need to prepare them for the second check, the third check, the exit, the expansion, the hiring. And, and if they're not at ease now, they won't be prepared for later. Let's talk about exits. I know it's a young market, but investors are only going to invest when they can reasonably expect exits. What are the exit options for startups in Bangladesh? Can they IPO? Are acquisitions likely? How do you think about this? Fantastic question. This comes up quite often for us. So Bangladesh realistically has never seen an exit from a startup. I mean, there have been companies that have been sold, but not the way we would determine an exit where there's an investment return. And I think that's fine. Every ecosystem has to start somewhere. We have the three traditional exits in mind when we actually talk about what we expect for our investors. You have IPO, which we don't expect to be likely. I mean, it's not likely realistically globally, much less in Bangladesh. And I can get into that in a bit. Secondary sales, I think that's fairly common. I think we've seen quite a bit of that over the past few years. That's been the most common exit so far in Bangladesh, if you will. And then, of course, most importantly, acquisitions. Now, at Anchorless, I would say we probably prioritize acquisitions because our context is, okay, how much money exists in this market? Who is interested in it? Uh, for any time, any investment that we make, we like to have an optionality of anywhere from 30 to 50 potential acquirers globally. So I'll give you an example of an industry that we love, that we are hesitant right now to invest in, but are working actively to figure out a solution. EdTech. EdTech, Bangladesh is, is a huge education market. The problem is there are no natural acquirers for ed tech outside of arguably Indian tech startups right now. 
So we have started engaging with global funds and industry experts to figure out, okay, how do we take two steps ahead and say, okay, this is where your second and third round of funding may come from. And because of those funding networks, you'll then get access to global education companies who would then be interested in entering Bangladesh. So it takes a little more legwork than, say, building a SaaS company where just out of nowhere you have 100 acquirers. But it's inevitable that we will have to do that. And frankly, we think it's part of our duty to do that. What do you think the local companies or local large corporates can do to support the VC community? What are they already doing? What could they do better? I think the two largest problems in Bangladesh in terms of the ecosystem are the lack of angel investments that are structured appropriately for future runs of funding. And two is the lack of corporate venture uh, capital. And by that, you mean they're taking too, too much equity too early? It's, it's a combination of a few things. It's sometimes that. I've seen horror stories of 70% equity already gone pre-seed. And I've also seen investors who come in and they might actually only take 25%. But the way they boss around the founders, the founders lose autonomy and lose their ambition and motivation. And at that point, it's just not as investable. If you then are a venture investor and you come in and you interview the founders, you can see that they've lost their fire. And nobody wants to write a check for somebody who's lost their fire. So this has all been really informative. And I know I've confirmed the appreciation that I've already got for Bangladesh. It's grounded in reality thanks to this conversation. Uh, I want to thank Salsa Bil Khan for her insights about, about you, Rahat, and providing some of the questions that we should ask here today. For myself and for um, our listeners, what's the best way to follow what you guys are doing in Bangladesh? We're pretty active on Twitter and LinkedIn. We are trying to be as active as possible in disseminating information about the industry. And yeah, I think just be on the lookout for Bangladesh. Google it. Set up a Google alert. We're pretty excited about what's going on. Okay, great. We will share those details uh, on the show notes. Rahat, thanks so much. Real pleasure talking to you today. Thank you so much for having me. I look forward to further conversations on this topic.